Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today on Resources Radio, I'm joined by Alice Hill and Leonardo Martinez-Diaz, authors of a new book released this fall by Oxford University Press called Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. Alice spent the bulk of her career in courtrooms, but became immersed in climate change after she joined the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in 2009. She then went on to the White House as special assistant to President Obama and member of his climate team. She's now a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, as well as serving as a life member on the Council of Foreign Relations. Leonardo spent several years as an academic before also joining the Obama administration, where he worked at both the U.S. Agency for International Development and at the Treasury Department, where he was a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy and Environment. He now works at the World Resources Institute as the Global Director for WRI's Sustainable Finance Center. So two great and experienced guests who are going to delve into the very important topics they cover in their book. They're going to highlight 10 lessons for decision makers that they identify. So stay with us for this fascinating conversation. Alice and Leonardo, thank you and welcome to Resources Radio. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and in person. Uh, You two together have written a book. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the introduction, the title of that book is Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. So I wanted to start by asking you why you were both interested in crafting this book and in working together on it. Well, Leo and I had had a fabulous uh, working relationship when I was at the White House and he was at the Department of Treasury. We had the opportunity to work on an executive order together about climate resilient development. So we learned a bit about each other. And then one day, Leo asked me to lunch and said, hey, you want to write a book? And I said, sure. (laughs) And uh, we ended up writing a book together, which focused on what I think we both perceived as a real gap in the work on resilience. Mm That is that climate change impacts will affect virtually everything, and our systems have not accounted for Mm. or prepared for the type of change that climate change brings. Mm -hmm. Leo, what about you? Anything to add? Well, I think we wanted to find a way to capture a lot of what we had seen and learned inside the government, and we realized that the focus was very much on mitigation. These were, after all, the days Mm -hmm. of the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we were getting all these signals from folks across the country that uh, were looking to solve problems related to climate impacts. And so we wanted to find a place to um, archive all of those experiences, Mm -hmm. but also to try to bring to the attention of uh, a bigger group of people, how important this challenge is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed, one thing I will say I really enjoyed about the book was the level of um, geographic, I hate to call it anecdotal because it's so much richer than that, but nonetheless, the sense of pulling in um, examples from the communities that you visited, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. Um, but I want to start with some definitions for our listeners. And in the book, you introduce some of those definitions early on. So uh, you write, we use the term resilience to refer to the capacity of a community to reduce, absorb, and recover from impacts of climate change. This definition covers a wide range of actions, from quote-unquote no-regret measures that can be taken quickly at little cost, 
and with little controversy, to large-scale transformational changes that require sophisticated scenario and cost-benefit analysis. So I, I pulled out the long version of that definition because I think uh, it speaks a lot. And, in, and I just wanted to delve with you, Alice, into that language a little bit more. It seems like those words were chosen very carefully. And so can you unpack that definition just a bit for the listeners uh, to the podcast? Maybe provide some examples of those no-regret or transformational changes? Sure. Resilience, it turns out, is a very useful word because so many people see themselves in it. And it has exploded in usage really since the first time identified in about uh, the early 1800s where it was applied to engineering. Hmm. And now, if you look at a Google chart, it's just exploded Hmm. in usage. But the reason it's so popular when you're talking about climate change is that climate change is a very polarizing topic. Mm -hmm. So it has proven to be something that politicians can use safely as they Mm -hmm. want to address the future risk. The reason it's so important to address future risk and build resilience is because these impacts are coming quickly and we can learn from no more moments, that is a particular bad event. Houston had a remarkable one with Mm -hmm. Harvey Mm -hmm. when the hurricane stalled over Pancake Flat Houston, which had had much development and no building code to protect against flooding Mm -hmm. for the city. So they have found resilience and no more moment after Harvey, and they've gone on to apply a building code that requires elevation of properties plus a issue a bond that will finance flood mitigation. What our book hopes is that communities will take advantage of those no more moments, but they will also in advance understand that the Mm -hmm. risks are here and that they need to build resilience. I'll just footnote that the definition of resilience is extremely difficult and Recently, Congress directed FEMA to come up with a mm. single definition of resilience for the federal government. Mm. Sounds like a tall challenge, but maybe the book can help. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, so, Leo, I want to turn over to you. And the book offers, and again, I quote, 10 lessons for building resilience organized in 10 chapters. So, Leo, can you give us an overview of those 10 lessons, including maybe a little bit about how you went about organizing your thinking, (laughs) distilling anything into a finite number of things I've found particularly challenging. Uh, And so any of your your thinking about how you got to those 10 would be really helpful. Sure. Um, We divided the book into three sections uh, based on uh, what we thought brought together some of these lessons. So the first section is about those elements, those things that can bring about systemic change, mm-hmm. that is change across the country in, in you know, multiple uh, sectors uh, in a way that would affect millions of people. And that's ultimately what we're going to need. We're going to need uh, really systemic change. And so the three things in that section uh, are about that. The first one uh, in there uh, is about uh, rethinking where and how we build. These are the things that uh, Alice was just referring to. So that's uh, the first lesson. The second is about the law. We were a bit uh, cute and called it Lawyer Up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, this is a chapter that looks at the legal system, the judicial system in the United States, mm-hmm. and how it's going to arbitrate uh, over the coming years who pays for the damage, right? On whose plate is this ultimately going to land? Uh, and how will the courts struggle with that, uh, with that very difficult question? And hopefully in the process, Will the ultimate fear of litigation 
push and incentivize different types of stakeholders to get resilient, to invest in resilience. The third lesson in this section is about markets. Uh, we called it making markets work for resilience. Uh, and this is about how do you use prices in different markets, insurance, real estate, stocks and bonds. How do we get these prices uh, to reflect the risk of climate impact? The second section of the book, in the, the middle, is meant to be practical. Mm -hmm. It's about the tools, the tools for the decision maker. And by decision maker, we didn't just talk about government folks, although that's our natural orientation, mm -hmm. but also we are thinking about business leaders. We're thinking about uh, local community leaders, nonprofits, all types of uh, decision makers who are going to be struggling with this question over the coming years. Mm -hmm. So it's about how to raise uh, funding for things that have to be invested in today. Uh, and finally, the last tool is about nudging, uh, colloquially known. Uh, it's, um, it basically says, look, we have these cognitive biases, right? We have these uh, mental um, uh, tendencies that often uh, blind us from uh, problems like climate change. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how can you apply little um, framing techniques that allow the different decision makers to get over these these uh, blocks, these um, uh, cognitive um, cognitive biases. Mm -hmm. The last section of the book is about the upenders. These are the really tough issues. Mm. They're the ones that really threaten to upend much of how we organize uh, society today. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we wanted to be constructive and talk mm -hmm. about what things people are doing today to try to address them. The first is health. Uh, how can we harden the healthcare system to ensure that it remains functioning uh, during extreme events. Mm -hmm. uh, the second piece is on migration. We uh, talk about how folks will be displaced from especially the coasts as sea level rise and other impacts uh, begin to hit. And we're going to have to think about how are we going to facilitate that process of allowing people to find safer ground. Mm -hmm. uh, the third lesson here is on inequality. There's all this inequality in the world already. Climate change is likely to make it worse. How can we um, try to mitigate that process? How do we buffer inequality? And finally, uh, national security. This is an area of interest to uh, many folks in uh, concern about uh, military readiness mm -hmm. uh, and our ability to protect uh, our national security abroad. And, and so we look at how climate change is forcing a rethinking of national security priorities. So that's, that's the book in a nutshell. I'm hoping to delve a little bit deeper into just a couple of those strategies. I will leave the readers to read the book for the full suite, but there are a couple that struck me as perhaps, and this might just be my perspective, but perhaps less intuitive about when the average consumer of information about climate change thinks about resilience. So if I can just pose to each of you uh, one of those, and Alice, I'll start with you. Um, so the large scale in the first section of the book, the large scale strategy dealing with the law, I'm intrigued by that one. And you wrote, as in other areas of social change, the law could eventually help drive large-scale resilience. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how you think about the role the legal system perhaps plays now or can play or should play differently in the future related to climate change? And what are the, you highlight in the book a number of the sort of sensitivities and challenges of relying on the legal system in this case. So maybe if you could just speak to those, that'd be great. Sure. The law or the legal system often drives very significant social change. We can think of desegregation. Sure. We can think of gay marriage. 
but also change in terms of uh, reducing public harm, asbestos, and that was through private litigation, people suing for asbestosis uh, harm mm -hmm. and recovery, similarly with cigarettes, and now we're seeing with the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. So if there is a strong uh, avenue for finding liability, it can dramatically alter how risks are perceived. Mm -hmm. There's a class of cases that are working their way through the courts now where litigants are seeking recovery, and often it's generally seeking uh, dollar amounts, but sometimes it's a change in behavior mm -hmm. for emissions. So suing the fossil fuel giants, Exxon, Chevron, for the emissions that they've caused and seeking either monetary rewards or some help in adaptation. I'm not sure those lawsuits will be successful. That's certainly a matter of debate among lawyers. But the area I know that will be active mm -hmm. is individual decisions of adaptation. And if we have findings from the court that it's, for example, negligent for an engineer to design or an architect design a building in a floodplain without taking into account either flood mitigation issues or advising the client, that will spur, if there is a finding of liability, a huge change in mm -hmm. behavior across the board because other engineers aren't going to mm -hmm. want to be found liable. And we will see improvements in our decision-making, a very small case, but one that speaks volumes was after Sandy, a couple in Connecticut had a 100-year-old home that was very heavily damaged in Sandy. When they sought to rebuild the home, they wanted to elevate the home, and mm -hmm. that is a common risk mitigation measure for flood. Just simply make it higher, and then yeah. the water washes through. Well, they went before their town council in Milford, Connecticut, and the town council said, no, you can't elevate. It violates our aesthetic rules for the town. This will be common going forward as these impacts come in and people want to make adjustments mm -hmm. to be safer. The trial judge in that case said, uh, didn't have much patience with the town. He said, we do not check our common sense at the door. Mm -hmm. But it's that kind of cleanup that will go along and make us safer, and then these huge levers of decisions that could prompt others similarly situated to correct their behavior. Mm -hmm. It's a slow-moving process. The law isn't known for its speed, but it's very powerful in getting people to change their behavior over a period of time. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thanks. And I, I remember reading that anecdote in the book as well, and... Uh, living in Washington, D.C., where there are height restrictions abound, and, you know, you can certainly end historic preservation restrictions, and um, these the sense of competing interests is very palpable, but um, understanding that climate needs to be a consideration is seems like a really important first step as you weigh some of those trade-offs. I think so, and I think that as the climate impacts become more damaging, which they are quickly, the weight given to certain mm -hmm. other aspects will lessen in the face of sure. risk to public safety and damage to property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Leo, let me turn to you and ask about the chapter titled Buffer Growing Inequality. So this is a topic that's frequently talked about in policy debates, in the academic literature, 
and no doubt in communities across the country. Uh, And people are increasingly drawing the connection between inequality and climate change. And so how do the effects of climate change already mirror um, national and international economic inequalities? And then in your view, what solutions might exist that might deal with both of those problems, the problem of needing more resilience and the problem of inequality simultaneously? Are there any such solutions that deal with both? We start this chapter by looking at the inequality picture and how it is affected by climate change internationally. Uh, We first look at what the uh, research is telling us is likely to occur. And uh, essentially, to put it, to to, uh, boil down a lot of complexity, there is a big arc that stretches uh, from parts of South America through Africa, uh, the Middle East, and then down to Southeast Asia Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and Australia that is likely to face uh, the first um, and most intense wave of climate impacts is already happening. And uh, many other countries in that region, in that big sort of arc that sweeps across the world, uh, already are some of the poorest countries that have the least capacity to adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the geographic lottery, if you will, uh, where do you happen to be located, uh, is overlapping with where climate change is likely to uh, occur first. Uh, those countries are likely to be more affected because they start from already from a higher baseline temperature. Mm -hmm. So more warming on top of already warm average temperatures leads to more damage to crops and to human health, for example. Uh, Then We we then look at the U.S. and uh, some of the literature there is telling us that climate change is going to affect different parts of the country in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S.'s own climate uh, uh, assessment uh, is telling us that there are different parts of the country that are going to suffer from different impacts. And many uh, of the less prosperous states in the Union, uh, including, for example, around the Gulf Coast, Mm -hmm. uh, are already suffering disproportionately from different types of impacts. And everywhere across the country, regardless of the state or the community, uh, the poor and vulnerable, uh, that is to say those uh, people with disabilities, people who may be uh, elderly and and have trouble moving around, Mm -hmm. uh, folks with... um, who don't have access to emergency cash in case of a disaster, all those folks will be suffering first. Mm-hmm. And so the overriding theme of the chapter is we've got to look after those communities first, and we need to put in place systems that are going to allow us to identify those people early on so that we can uh, we can get them out of harm's way mm-hmm. uh, and provide support when uh, extreme events happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look especially at uh, different types of inequality. There's, for example, inequality of private safety nets, Mm -hmm. access to a bank account, access to um, private insurance or renter's insurance if you happen to be a renter. Mm -hmm. These things are very valuable and they can provide a cushion in case uh, of a major disaster. But many folks don't have that uh, that type of uh, private um, uh, buffer zone. Uh, there's also mobility, right? Uh, not just uh, in the immediate aftermath, for example, of, of Katrina, once uh, public transportation failed, uh, a huge chasm opened between those who had access to private cars mm-hmm. uh, and those who had to rely on a now non-functioning uh, public transportation system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is those moments when inequality really uh, can mean the difference between life and death. Um, and uh, we have to be able to... Uh, think ahead and and think about what's going to happen when uh, that type of uh, public uh, transportation system is is failing or public health uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, finally, we look at, um, you know, this idea of uh, social resilience. In many places, uh, some communities are tightly knit. Uh, People know one another. 
neighbors know each other. They look after uh, those that uh, may be stuck in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a degree of um, uh, solidarity in in the case of uh, of a disaster. This has been documented very very well in the case of, for example, heat waves in Chicago, uh, heat waves in Europe in 2003. Uh, isolation kills is the conclusion of this work, uh, and it is crucial that we find ways uh, both to promote more uh, social. Uh, cohesion and social resilience, but also uh, to use technology to try to find out those folks that may need assistance first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, we, we try to provide a few examples of things that can help. I'll just give you one. Um, if you just um, try to focus on, on avoiding losses from disasters, right? What that's going to do is it's going to uh, you know, suggest that you put all your money to protect the places where the assets are located. Mm-hmm. So we, for example, heard from a resilience uh, expert in New York who said, look, if I wanted to avoid the most losses mm-hmm. from climate impacts, I would put all my money to protect lower Manhattan mm-hmm. um, because that's where the assets are and that's where you would be able to protect the biggest amount of um, economic uh, assets. However, that would obviously mean that you would take money out of uh, protecting other parts of the city where there may be even more people or people who are a greater vulnerability. And so we have to be able to go beyond simply using this metric of uh, economic losses avoided and try to figure out how do we think uh, in a more, um, in a bigger way that incorporate these equity concerns uh, into sort of welfare losses avoided, not just economic losses. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's various ways to do it, and we're still, it's a work in progress. But we have to be able to look beyond simply protecting the assets, because that down that road lies only more inequality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what struck me actually about both of your answers on these specific topics was uh, circling back to one of the tools that you mentioned, which is data, right? Data in order to allow... Um, allow people like that engineer who doesn't want to get sued to actually make the decision beforehand because he how to better equip that structure that he's building uh, to be resilient in the face of climate change. Uh, it's very I can imagine a situation where that engineer would say, well, how was I supposed to know what the consequences were going to be? Um, so the, giving that data to that kind of person, very important from sort of the legal and liability perspective, and certainly from a, a decision maker perspective, trying to um, do their best for vulnerable populations, understanding where those populations are, what their constraints are, equally important for sort of remedying, for building resilience in the face of these challenges. So um, so I want to take a step back and talk about sort of something thematic throughout the book. Uh, and you, you actually open the book with an anecdote set in Norfolk, Virginia, and a number of the points in the book are illustrated with examples uh, from there. So why Norfolk, Alice? Why um Why that particular venue, and how did you go about connecting with people there? We chose Norfolk as an example throughout the book. It appears in every chapter Mm -hmm. because of its importance to our national security Mm -hmm. as well as its resemblance to the rest of the nation. Mm -hmm. In national security terms, it has about 30 military installations plus an additional large federal presence, It has the largest naval base in the world. Mm -hmm. We build some of our nuclear submarines, some of our major ships there. It's a center of uh, commercial activity as well, but it also suffers from great inequality. About 20% of the population lives below the poverty line. 
and it's facing a crushing risk from sea level rise. The seas are rising very quickly there. One of the things I didn't appreciate when I started in climate change is that sea level rise isn't uniform. It's not Mm. like when you step Mm -hmm. in a bathtub and the whole thing just rises. Uh, It varies according to location. Norfolk uh, is in a location that's suffering a rapid rate of sea level rise, plus the land is subsiding. Mm -hmm. So they are seeing what we call sunny day flooding. That means flooding occurs just during a high tide event. One of my very first days in the White House, I was at a meeting with the Norfolk City Manager, and he had come uh, hat in hand to beg for help because he said, we have all these military assets there, but our town is not ready. 90% of the people who work on the bases, I did not realize this, live in the surrounding towns. So... In order to have full military uh, operational readiness, we need to be able to get those people on base. But they're suffering from sunny day flooding. Mm -hmm. And the town had just recently, Norfolk had just recently completed a light rail system Mm -hmm. called the Tide, a little uh, irony in that. But the city manager said, look, we didn't consider sea level rise when we built that light rail by the way, using a lot of federal money. And because we didn't, it's at risk of flooding. And so that route that civilians would use and others to get on the base may not be available. So from a national security perspective, as well as the long-term health of the town, they needed help. And we began at the White House with a series of events with them and formed a pilot so that uh, the town could plan. During the course of that, we saw many typical reactions. We were doing a planning scenario about future sea level rise with approximately 200 people from Norfolk. And the first response was, well, let's just build a seawall, which is often the first response. You'll see that in Boston. You'll see that in New York. You'll see that in San Francisco. But a seawall in many locations, particularly one like Norfolk, will not be viable. There's just too much coastline there with the inlets and other things. Then we um, heard discussion of managed retreat. The Republican mayor in Norfolk claims to be the first mayor, much less Republican mayor, who ever uttered in public the term managed retreat, meaning that people would have to move away from the coast and then they have public housing that's already at great risk of flooding as decisions are made about relocating those folks. That reflects a decision that will be made in many areas of the country. We have about, well, at least a half a million units, public housing units in floodplains currently. So Norfolk and its challenges can be a guiding light as they resolve their path forward for many other communities, but it's also of critical interest to the nation Mm -hmm. because of these national security assets. Yeah. So Leo, a question back to you. Uh, How do you think about resilience in the context of the many actions that humans are gonna have to take to combat the worst effects of climate change? So I think you guys have, have emphasized both in the book and on this podcast that this requires systemic change. um, And that's a tall order. So how do you think about resilience 
in is it on equal footing with mitigation activities is it more urgent should more money be put into resilience and i'm i'm asking a bit of a provocative question i know i'm probably um I'm offering you a what is probably a false dichotomy, but can you give our listeners any any flavor of how you think about these uh, with the scarce resources with which we're operating now? In the book, we're pretty clear that there's no no way around it. You have to do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be able to address the urgency of, of mitigation, uh, of cutting greenhouse gas emissions, as well as building resilience today. Uh, the thing is, though, they're very different problems, mm-hmm. and they require very different kinds of solutions. Uh, mitigation is ultimately uh, a centralized, uh, a more centralized problem. You mm-hmm. can address, for example, uh, the emissions from power plants uh, through some type of centralized solution, be that a cap-and-trade system, a regulatory approach, a carbon tax, something like that. Uh, and ultimately, it's about uh, making sure that we make those important cuts in emissions, that's the only thing that ultimately is going to uh, help us stabilize uh, the, um, uh, the emissions and, and ultimately the temperature. With adaptation and resilience, you're dealing with local problems. Ultimately, they're going to be manifested in very unique ways depending on where you are. Just as Alice uh, talked about uh, in Norfolk, there's a very particular set of risks having to do with that geography and that particular uh, community and how it's been, how it's evolved historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like that, in every part of the country in the world, the specific challenges of resilience are going to uh, relate to the local situation. Mm-hmm. And the solutions will have to be local as well because they will involve choices, uh, political choices and economic choices by people who live there. Many times difficult choices. And those will have to come ultimately from a dialogue with that community. And that community will have to make uh, those decisions. Uh, and so the room for federal action in in uh, greenhouse gas emissions cutting is pretty clear. Um, the role for federal action with resilience is more complicated. Mm-hmm. The federal government, there is one of many players. It can certainly support and provide uh, assistance through uh, financing and data and so on. But you'll need a very strong combination, collaboration between mm-hmm. business, local government, mayors, um, uh, states certainly. Uh, as well as the federal government to to be able to get solutions going. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I know that we are coming to the end of our podcast time. Um, well, thank you both again. This has been a really very interesting, fascinating conversation. I want to close by asking you both what is at the top of your stack. So what would you recommend that our listeners might want to read, listen to, watch something uh, related to these issues that you you would particularly recommend to our listeners? Alice? Well, I know what's on top of my stack. Okay, great. And that is to understand better a recent study that came out about sea level rise Mm -hmm. done by Climate Central. And unfortunately, it discovered that the data that we had been using to determine sea level rise was inaccurately measuring actually where the sea would uh, end up. Mm. And many, many more cities will be inundated far earlier than we expected. The reason why I think that is so important is it shows you how quickly this topic is evolving and our understanding of it and the importance of recognizing that what we have assumed will be a steady state is no longer a steady state and also it could be far worse than what we initially imagined. 
So I enjoy uh, learning what uh, the latest analysis are because it greatly informs the decisions I believe the nation needs to make in the very near future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Leo, what about you? I'm a big fan of uh, what's now known as cli-fi, climate uh, fiction. And um, increasingly, I think we need to turn towards literature and to fiction to try to help us understand a future that we're having trouble visualizing because it is going to be so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those visions are, you know, apocalyptic and, and uh, dystopian, and, and that's not particularly helpful, to be honest, as interesting and fascinating as it might be for a certain uh, audience. Uh, but there are fiction books that uh, can actually provide some insight into how a future politicians, perhaps even our future selves, might uh, grapple with this question. One that comes to mind is called Ultimatum. It's a fairly obscure novel, uh, about 10 years old now. Uh, and it talks about how a future president of the United States uh, in the 2030s uh, has to grapple with this question of managed retreat. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, quite useful to imagine what that president's conversation with his advisors would be like mm-hmm. uh, and uh, what kinds of solutions uh, would come from that. So I think we have to think very broadly here about how to imagine uh, that future so that we can get a better handle on the present. Mm, great. And maybe that can be your next book if you feel like taking a foray into a different kind of authorship. Um, well, thank you both again so much for joining us. I want to remind our listeners the book is called Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. I've been joined by the authors of that book, Alice Hill and Leonardo Martinez-Diaz. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.